This episode is brought to you by the Mass Foundation. If you found in possession of the unauthorized biography of Ezra Mass by Daniel James, we know who you are. We are coming for you. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 24 of Young Zero. I'm your host Ben. Joining me today is Jared Marcel Pollan. Jared is the author of The Unified Field of Loneliness, and his new novel, Venus and Document, is out now. He joins me from his home in Prague. Welcome to show, Jared. Thank you for having me, Ben. It's a pleasure. How is life in Prague? Life in Prague is good. Um, it's a little cold here. It's a little rainy right now. Um, but uh, the springtime is lovely in this city. And uh, I've been in Prague for many years now, and it feels very comfortable here, um, very relaxed, and, uh, and it's great. You said before you've been living there for about five years, but how does a Canadian end up in Prague? That's a good question. Um, well, there, it was a mixture of, of practical considerations and uh, sort of certain romantic um, uh, fantasies. Uh, the former being cost of living uh, versus uh, 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 salary and um uh, access to institutions like, you know, healthcare and things like that. And uh, uh, the other part of it, of course, was uh, Franz Kafka and uh, Milan Kundera and uh, all of the writers who made their home here at one point or another. Um, Tom McCarthy, I believe, also lived in Prague in the early 90s for a little while, wrote his first novel here, Men in Space. And uh, so that was really all the encouragement that I needed to move here. Hmm. And uh, yeah, I've been here for, for about five years now. And I have a really nice job. Uh, I teach English privately, and it's a life that's conducive to to writing. I have a lot of free time. Uh, I can make my own schedule, and uh, it's a uh, it really is a uh, a kind of sort of semi bohemian, semi detached kind of existence that I'm able to live here, which is not something that uh, I would be able to say for myself if I had stayed in New York City. Uh, so I'm happy that I've landed here. In any case. <laughs> Sounds like a great place. When I've come to visit, where should I go? Where should you go when you come here? Well, you should go uh, not too far from where I am right now. Um, Prague is divided by uh, a river, the Vltava, not the Danube. And uh, on the, the west side of the river, uh, or I should say the north side of the river, actually, there is um, a, a giant stone plateau, which has a, a metronome on top of it, a huge swaying metronome, which in the summertime is the site of many uh, techno parties and things like that. It's kind of like a found space, an improvised space. Uh, but uh, everybody here in Prague calls it Stalin because during the 1950s, the largest stone statue of Stalin was constructed on top of that plateau. And in 1956, I believe it was, during the de-Stalinization of the Soviet Union, when Khrushchev came to power, they blew it up and it had been empty ever since. 
And then they installed the giant metronome there about 10 years ago. And now it's a party spot for kids. <laughs> so that's where I would go. <laughs> what is the literary scene like in Prague nowadays? Uh, the literary scene here in Prague, um, you know, I wish, uh, I wish I could tell you, perhaps maybe I just live a hermetic existence here, but um, uh the literary scene here in Prague, I don't think is quite as robust as it is in Berlin. Um, there are many people who are based in Berlin, like uh, Helen DeWitt, for example, Tom McCarthy, Lauren Euler, our friend Ryan Ruby. Uh, there's a number of people based there. He, Prague is maybe a little less attractive for, for expat writers. Um, but uh, this scene, or excuse me, this city certainly has had literary scenes that have sprouted in it. Um, over the past century or so, uh, the notable one being uh, the scene that Franz Kafka was a part of in the uh, early 20th century, and the various people that surrounded him in that circle, like Max Brode and, um, and Hasek, uh, as well as the literary scene that developed here in the 1960s and 70s with writers like Milan Kundera and Václav Havel and uh, uh, Ludwig Vatsalik, uh, and this city has uh, a literary atmosphere to it, even if it's not always identifiable by the people who live here necessarily, uh, but it certainly feels like a literary climate. Okay, I'm looking forward to coming to visit. <laughs> Let's move on to Venus and Document. It's your debut novel. It's out now from Crow's Nest Books. It's set in New York and your protagonist, Paul Henning, is attempting to document what is happening in the world following this natural disaster in New York. Could you tell us a bit more about your novel and the title? Well, the title uh, comes from uh, maybe a lesser known quote by Paul Valery. And, uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing essentially, but he's talking about the, the, uh, the impact that the intellect has on art <clears throat> and erudition when it comes to, to matters of art. And he says essentially that, uh, you know, uh, Erudition, when applied too strictly to art, can uh, create, um, you know, museums where there should be beauty and uh, limitless libraries where there should be, you know, real, true experience, knowledge, um, and this effectively makes Venus into a document. And so that's where the quote comes from. It's a little obscure, um, but uh, the the quote in this case is um, is designed to tap into two of the themes that. Uh, the novel is dealing with mainly the documentation or the recording of literally everything now in our lives, but also the protagonist's search for, for beauty and truth. Mm. It seems like this challenge Paul is set is to document everything and kind of synthesize it into some kind of essay. And obviously it's an impossible task. Is that something that you think about a lot? Yeah, I do. Um, I think that as, as the novel itself is something that attempts to do that. <clears throat> the novel as a kind of self-contained narrative unit uh, in attempting to uh, uh, locate or, or domesticate maybe certain universals, uh, attempts to try and contain an entire universe within itself. But the question now, of course, and this is partly what the novel is trying to address, is, is it possible for um, a single narrative effort, whether it be uh, a journalistic narrative or a, a poem or a novel or a piece of criticism to, to survive in the culture in which everything is recorded, everything is documented, 
and everything is assimilated into a giant narrative making machine. And that is essentially what the narrator is trying to grapple with throughout the, the course of the story. Uh, he's living in a time or in a culture that seems to be lurching from crisis to crisis before even the most previous crisis can be digested. And he has this very grand journalistic ambition to write this uh, summary of the times in which he lives, this sort of uh, diagnosis of uh, Weltschmerz or, or enemy or alien, theory of alienation in the modern age. <clears throat> you know, it's a very, uh, very arrogant and very vain uh, uh, project, of course. Uh, but it, it more widely reflects, I think, the project that all of us are engaged in, in the literary world. And uh, the novel is ultimately about his attempt to try and keep pace uh, with a world that is relentlessly narrativizing uh, and assimilating all of these things, seemingly simultaneously. Yeah, I think a lot of this novel is about this age of information that we live in and how the media um, produce so much information and the public just have to consume it. But are there some issues you think are more globally important than others? Yeah, sure. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm wary of the term issues. <laughs> it seems like so much of, of contemporary fiction deals with you know, issues and scare quotes. And part of the comedy of this novel is that it's sort of taking the piss out of the ideas that issues dominate our consciousness. So much of our consciousness from day to day is, is taken up by our preoccupation with and quote unquote issues. Where do we draw the line with consuming media and things like that? Is there a point where we just turn off or do we just have to consume everything and try to work out the things that are meaningful and the things that give us beauty and, you know, and, and joy? Well, I, I, <clears throat> I think this is, this has been true in, in, in any other time, but especially true now in our time and perhaps it's more fraught because of the speed at which we have to deal with it and the sheer volume of things that we have to sort through from day to day. But I think as a, as a thinking person and somebody who is um, interested in, in critical um, and analytical thinking, uh, deep sea thinking as Saul Bella once called it, um, you have to make uh, certain executive decisions about uh, you know, what you're going to let into your consciousness and how much you're going to let it occupy that space. And I think that that's something that is increasingly difficult to do now uh, in, the, in the digital age. Um, there are very few spaces left in our lives for uninterrupted uh, contemplation or just the sheer, the, the, the kind of... Uh, contemplative experience um, uh, that comes out of just being bored of having nothing else to do, which is something that we never have to face anymore because we always have something that can entertain us uh, or something that can interrupt us. Um, and that, again, is something that the novel, I think, is attempting to deal with is the problem of trying to figure out what exactly it is we're going to pay attention to. Uh, what needs to be paid attention to and how much of our attention should be given to it. And I don't think it's at all clear uh, right now what we should be paying attention to and which uh, issue uh, demands our attention uh, foremost. Mm. Did you have any specific influences writing this novel? Yeah, well, the, the composition of this novel took a few years. I mean, there were several revisions involved and it went in and out of the drawer. Uh, 
for a long time. And I, it seems like every time it came out of the drawer, there was a new influence operating there. But I would say that the, the biggest influence on this novel probably would be the, uh, the later novels of Saul Bellow, the, the intellectual comedies or what Bellow, I believe once referred to as comedies of higher education. So Humboldt's Gift, uh, Herzog, uh, The Dean's December, Mr. Sandler's Planet, those kinds of novels. Um, those intellectual comedies, which also are also very deeply metaphysical and deeply philosophical novels as well, um, but which uh, approach it through the sort of the minutia of everyday life, which is something that I think I also tried to do in this novel. I guess people will be the judge of whether or not I did that successfully. And I'd say the other big inspiration on the book, which is actually mentioned in the book, is Fellini's Eight and a Half. Because Eight and a Half, similarly, is about somebody who is trying to, it's a film about somebody trying to make a film uh, and uh, continuously failing throughout. And he has this uh, Guido, the, the protagonist of, of the film, constantly has this critic leaning over his shoulder and telling him like this film has no, you know, coherent framework. It, it lacks structure. You know, it, it doesn't have a, a coherent philosophical premise, you know, which is of course reflected in the film itself. Um, and uh, ultimately at the end of the film, uh, the movie doesn't get made and the characters dance around the, uh, the sawdust ring, the, the empty set of the film that will never be made, this project that will never be completed. It's a kind of celebration of failure. And uh, Venus is, is very much a, a novel about somebody trying to produce this great essay or this great analysis of the times. And, you know, I don't want to give anything away, but maybe succeeding, maybe not succeeding in recognizing that maybe there are no epiphanies at the end of that project. Hmm. Obviously, you've written quite a lot of criticism. You've written some shorter fiction as well. Is there a big difference between writing a novel and writing shorter fictional essays? There's definitely a difference between writing uh, fiction and, and nonfiction criticism. Um, they require different parts of your brain, I think, and different instincts. Uh, fiction, I think, is, is processed more on a subconscious level or maybe an unconscious level. And it's essentially irrational, I'd say. The, the things that guide you or the impulses that you follow when writing fiction are very irrational. And you have to suspend that part of your, of your reasoning or of your faculties that might caution you against that. Uh, whereas writing essays and criticism is, is much more right-brained. You're constructing an argument um, through a series of, of propositions and uh, you ultimately have to be convincing in one form or another. That's not to say that you have to answer any questions necessarily, but your thought process itself has to be uh, convincing or authoritative to the reader. You know, you have to have some kind of ethos. Uh, and that requires just a certain amount of uh, mental discipline and, uh, and the ability to, to serve uh, whatever your subject is. And so the demands are very different uh, when it comes to, to fiction and, and nonfiction. And I would say, I don't know if other writers feel this way, but I feel like they're different even on a uh, metabolic level. Um, I, can, I can usually write a lot more per day of nonfiction than I can of fiction. 
on an average day, if it's a good day, I might be able to write about 500 words of, of fiction and I can work for maybe two hours max. But when it comes to writing an essay, I can work for maybe four or five hours if it's a good day and I can write maybe a thousand words. So I can do more work because I'm using a different part of my brain. So yes, they operate on very different levels and require very different instincts. In terms of uh, writing criticism, how does it work with getting paid for stuff like that? Are you writing stuff uh, by request or are you writing stuff and sending it out? How does that work? Well, like a lot of people, I, I pitch relentlessly <laughs> uh, because that's, that's the way it goes. Um, I have some places where I can be fairly confident that my work will be accepted, still have to pitch the idea, uh, but they are more or less homes for my work. Uh, and when it comes to, when it comes to thinking about what you want to write about and, uh, and, and pitching the idea, it's, it's important to recognize that, uh, no matter how good the idea might be or how appropriate you might think it is for a particular magazine, there are all types of other um, factors that have to be taken in consideration for a magazine to accept such a piece. And you might think a, a particular essay is perfect for a magazine, um, but they don't accept it for various reasons. Um, so uh, yeah, it's, it's a, a struggle, of course, to get your pieces published. You shouldn't take anything for granted. I'm happy to say that in the past two years or so, I've been paid for pretty much everything I've written. Um, so I consider myself to be a working professional in that regard. Um, I don't do much for free anymore, uh, but I still have to pitch quite a bit. Yeah, I'm not quite at the stage yet where I can just sit back and wait for the commissions to roll in, although that would be nice. Mm. Um, hopefully one day we'll get to that point. If you had an unlimited, uh amount of time or somebody to pay you an unlimited amount of money. Is there a certain project you'd like to work on? Well, I suppose I would write another novel if I was given a very generous grant. Um, I have a few ideas for novels that I might like to write in the future. And so, yeah, I think I would dedicate uh, a year or two years of my time to working on uh, a novel uh, because that really is, I think, the most satisfying form of long-term work. Um, and uh, again, there's a, uh, a particular world that you, that you live in when you're writing fiction, a particular metabolic energy and, and unconscious movement that you make through your ideas uh, that is very different than, uh, than other kinds of thinking. Uh, and uh, it's a very pleasant place to be. It's a, a wonderful thing to be able to wake up in the morning and make your coffee and sit down at the desk and just use your imagination and to have complete freedom, uh, which you don't always have when you're writing uh, fiction, or excuse me, when you're writing nonfiction or, or criticism. So yes, the pleasures of writing uh, fiction uh, cannot be overstated. It can be very maddening at times, but it can also be the, uh, the most satisfying writing you will ever do. Is there anything you're working on at the moment you wanna tell us about? Well, I can tell you what's coming out maybe. Um, I just finished a review of uh, uh, Thomas Piketty's new book. Um, Thomas Piketty is a French economist, uh, published really big books uh, like uh, Capital in the 21st Century, which was published in 2013, and Capital and Ideology, which was published in 2020. And he has a new book called uh, A Brief History of Equality, which I'm happy to say is much shorter. 
Uh, and I recently did a review of that for Quillette. And I should also have an essay uh, coming out in Liberties, uh, the journal run by uh, Leon Rieseltier and Celeste Marcus. And uh, the essay is about Václav Havel, who was the first democratically elected president of Czech Republic in 1989, uh, a kind of philosopher king of sorts, one of the very few intellectuals in history who did not covet power, had no interest in power, and yet found himself in a position of power nonetheless. Uh, and uh, that piece should be coming out sometime in the summer issue, either in June or July. Very good. Okay. Shall we move on to your gateway books? What were some of the books that opened the world of literature for you? Well, the big one was 1984, I would say. But I should preface this by saying that I was not a reader as a child. Um, I had little to no interest in literature until I was about 16. Um, didn't particularly like reading, didn't get very good grades in school in English grammar. In fact, some of my worst report cards uh, were you know, for, for English grammar. But something happened um, that particular summer uh, between, it, it was between 10th and 11th grade. I read 1984 and I, I see that as the moment where my, my interest in politics and my interest in literature were both born simultaneously. And you know, it, sound, it sounds a bit trite or a bit banal to say this now, but at that time, it really was the first time that I realized that uh, books could be more than just books or that uh, entertainment was more than just entertainment. Um, perhaps because the content of 1984, the subject of 1984 is very identifiably about the world in which it was written. Um, but that was a complete uh, revelation for me uh, and a huge ex uh, explosion of potential, I think on my part in terms of what I was interested in uh, intellectually, academically and artistically. And that was further, further expanded, I would say, by books like Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce. That was a big one for me as well. Um, I think there are certain adolescent books that appeal to different types. Um, you have books like Catcher in the Rye, of course, uh, which I think appeals to a certain type of teenager. Um, you have books like On the Road, which I think appeals to a certain kind of uh, young man. And then you have books like Joyce's Portrait. And as someone who fancied himself at the time to be a young intellectual in a young esthete, uh, Portrait of the Artist was a, a book that spoke very directly to me. I felt as if I were being personally addressed when I read it. Uh, and so those two books are the ones that really stand out for me uh, at that particular period in my life when I was getting into literature. And so what pushed you into doing your MFA? Well, I'd be lying if I said the reasons for it were totally academic. Um, I went to Sarah Lawrence in, uh, in New York City. And uh, my main reason for going there was really just to go live in New York and have all the experiences that come along with that. Uh, but I also felt like it would be a good opportunity for me to take two years and try to simulate the life of a working writer uh, because uh, the MFA program for writing at Sarah Lawrence is um, uh, low maintenance and, and low residency. You have only about two classes a week. Uh, you spend maybe six hours in the classroom max. Maybe you have a workshop. And so the program really gives you a lot of freedom to uh, 
self-motivate and do the kind of work that you will be expected to do as a writer once you graduate, because no one's going to make you do it right. No one's going to make you sit down and do the work. So it trains you to be disciplined in that way. And uh, that was one of the great things about that program. And uh, it gave me a chance to really build my chops as a writer. And when I got into the program, uh, getting into the program was a big confidence boost, but I wasn't yet sure if this was really what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And by the time I was done the program, it was very clear to me that I was in it for the long haul, for better or worse, whether it was profitable for me uh, to do so, that this was the thing that I really wanted to do. So the, the program gave me the space to make that discovery. Uh, and so it was a kind of spontaneous decision uh, to get my MFA, but I'm, I'm certainly happy that I did. And I started writing this novel uh, while in that program. So it gave me a lot. How does one survive in New York doing an MFA and trying to write for a living? <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm the right person to ask because I got kicked out of New York, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which, which is partly how I came to Prague. I mean, I, I graduated from the program in 2015 uh, in New York and had every intention on staying but found it difficult to uh, get work and to, and to survive financially as so many people do. You know, I think Joan Didion says somewhere in her piece about New York that New York is a city only for the very rich and the very poor. And if you're anywhere in between, you just get eaten alive, which is, I suppose is true for, for a lot of us. And, uh, after graduating, I, I went back to Canada and kind of moped around for the better part of a year and wanted to get back to New York as soon as possible. Uh, took a job, saved up some money, and then decided at the last minute, instead of going to New York, that I would maybe come to Europe instead because it seemed to provide more opportunities for me um, to live the kind of life that I wanted to live, the life that would be more conducive to writing. Because in New York City, uh, and I have many friends who live in New York still, um, I'm sorry to say that the city doesn't give you the time that you deserve uh, to focus on your writing. Uh, and there's very little space reserved for the, the tranquility and contemplation that uh, something like writing fiction requires. So to, in answer to your question, uh, rather laboriously, I would say that um, I really don't know how one survives in a city like New York <laughs> as a writer. I wish I knew. All right, let's move on to the living writers who have carte blanche with you. Oh, uh, Tom McCarthy. Absolutely. Um, for my money, to Tom McCarthy is the, uh, the greatest living writer right now. Um, not of the, I would, the, the generation that I would consider to be, you know, the, the generation that's already been canonized. Writers like Pinchon and DeLillo, um, but uh, contemporary writers, writers still in the prime, uh, uh, Tom McCarthy for me is among the very finest and it doesn't matter what he writes, I would buy it. Um, have you read Making of the Incarnation yet? Yes, I did and I reviewed it actually last year uh, for the smart set. Uh, I thought that Making of Incarnation was excellent. It reminded me a lot of Gravity's Rainbow at times. Um, you know, McCarthy, of course, is an avant-gardist and an experimentalist, but this book was, even by his standards, uh, 
exceptionally experimental at times. There are whole sections of the book. I mean, I don't, I don't know if anybody knows anything about the book, but it's essentially uh, very loosely about the making of a science fiction film, which is called Incarnation, hence the title, Making of Incarnation. And there are some scenes in the book where it's just uh, the two guys from the motion capture department on the film just talking about how certain things are gonna be represented on the screen realistically. How, how do you accurately capture emotion? And uh, a lot of it is just like mathematical talk and geometric talk. It's very technical at times. It reminds me a bit of the sections of Gravity's Rainbow that are about rocket physics or the sections of Moby Dick that are about whaling. Uh, and the novel is very uncompromising in that respect. It gives it all to you. It's very maximal uh, and it doesn't, it's not that it doesn't take your patience into account, but it also doesn't give it to you easily either. Sounds uh, good. Yeah. I've got that in my TBR pile. I haven't got to it yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, I really love McCarthy's uh, previous novel as well, Satin Island. Mm. Uh, and I would say that Satin Island was also quite, uh, quite an inspiration on Venus and Document as well. I started writing Venus right around the time that I uh, read that novel, and it had a big impact on me as well. So uh, all praises to, to Tom McCarthy. Excellent. All right. What books are you currently reading or have recently enjoyed or are looking forward to? Well, right now I'm reading mostly for, for research for pieces that I plan to write in the future. Um, at the moment, I'm reading two biographies of Percy Shelley. Uh, and I'm sorry to say that the, the authors of these biographies is going to escape me at the moment. But one is a, a standard biography of Shelley, which is published by the New York Review of Books by a literary biographer, very well known. Again, his name escapes me, Richard, Richard something. Um, and I'm also reading uh, a book by Princeton University Press called Radical Shelley, which is more of an intellectual biography of Shelley's life. Um, and I'm reading these two books simultaneously right now because I'm thinking that I might like to write a, a piece about Shelley's politics um, and his uh, anarchist philosophy and his atheism and his views of social reform uh, during his time. So I'm doing some research work at the moment, which certainly is reading for pleasure. Um, and uh, if I can pitch that piece and, uh, and do so successfully, I'll probably continue to, to read that for research as well. Um, and I'm thinking now that the summer's here, I might uh, try and tackle Bolaños and Savage Detectives again, because I read it uh, a number of years ago when I was in grad school, actually. And uh, because of the reading load I had at the time, did not fully appreciate the experience, did not get as much out of it as I uh, had hoped to. So I'm probably gonna go over it again this summer uh, and dedicate more of my time and mental energy to it. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm due for a reread of that at some point. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a, it's a toss up. Uh, you know, if you ask people if they like Savage Detectives better than 2666, um, some people come down very firmly on the side of Savage Detectives, and uh, I, I prefer 2666, actually. Um, but yeah, it's very, it's very polarizing, which mm. book is considered to be the superior one. Yeah, I've, I've got to say I'm in the 2666 camp as well. But um, yeah, I did. I loved Savage Detectives, but I haven't gone back to it. So we'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Jared Marcel Pollan. This episode is brought to you by Thomas Hardy's Tess of the Dobervilles, as read by Kendrick Lamar. 
Guess of the Jabra Villas, a poor woman, faithfully presented by Thomas Hardy on an evening in the latter part of May, a middle-aged man was walking homeward from Shaston to the village of Marlott in the adjoining Vale of Blakewall, Blakewall. Get it now on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Beyond the Zero. It's time for Jared's Top 10. Okay, so sadly, um, you know, I'm staying at a friend's place right now, so I don't actually have a lot of these books with me, um, so I won't be able to hold them up as props. Um, and uh, I should also say that um, uh, these books are ranked in no particular order, <laughs> and that uh, some of them are, are I say most of them are probably canonical, you know, but uh, some of them are maybe uh, uh, a little bit unexpected, you know, I don't want to be too boring about this. Uh, but with no more disclaimers. Uh, I'd say number 10 would be, uh, because of this podcast from, from its namesake, uh, would be Gravity's Rainbow, of course. Um, I mean, how do you even begin to describe this novel? I mean, <laughs> a description of any novel is, a, is a, you know, ultimately doing it a, a disservice. So I'm not sure if I can really even adequately explain Gravity's Rainbow. All I can say is that the novel is a complete singularity. Uh, there's nothing else like it that I've ever read. And uh, I've read it twice now. The first time I read it, I was quite young. I was about 20. And of course, was completely unconditioned, completely unprepared to, to read it. And uh, it was uh, totally overwhelming. It was a kind of vertiginous experience. Yeah. Uh, but I knew that it was uh, incredible uh, in the way that you always know something is good. And then I reread it a couple summers ago as well. And uh, it was uh, it re it reaffirmed everything that I loved about it in the first place. Uh, and uh, I think uh, Pinchon, for all of his, you know, for all of his difficulties, for all of his frustrations at times, is um, absolutely the, you know, the preeminent novel of the post-war um, American literary scene. So, yeah, I'd say that's that. And that is the book that I would turn to and that I would recommend most readily to anybody who wanted to read Pinchon. Um, I don't know how you feel about this, but, uh, I think if you're going to read Pinchon, you gotta like really get your feet wet. I think you should just dive right into Gravity's Rainbow. You know, some people might start with V or they might start with Crying of Lot 49, but I think you just gotta go all in. I think the only issue with that, with that is I think it defeats a lot of people. So, um, but I think anyone who's who's keen on that kind of thing, I think, yeah, I think you're right. They should just d jump into one of the big books like Mason and Dixon or Gravity's Rainbow. Yes, Mason and Dixon is also on my reading list for this summer as well. Uh, if I have time, I hope to get to it. Mm. At number nine, um, I could have chosen any number of Bellow books for this. I mean, I could have easily chosen Herzog, but I would have to say that Humboldt's Gift is the novel that uh, consistently delivers the most pleasure for me. Um, and it's special for a number of reasons, um, but uh, I'd say it taught me at a very important time in my life as a writer, uh, how to do the thing that I was trying to do, which is how to write about ideas 
in a discursive way uh, that is also uh, dramatic and also entertaining and operating very much within the, uh, the, the parameters of fiction uh, and not another, not another tradition like a philosophical tradition or an essay tradition. And uh, it was a book that I really needed at the time I read it. And uh, it was, again, a, a kind of uh, explosion of potential in terms of what I, what I thought fiction could do uh, and what I thought a, a writer could do. And Bello, of course, being the, uh, the great stylist that he was, he makes it look effortless. He makes it look so easy in a way that very few other writers can. And he has a depth and a weight of voice that I think few writers can, can claim to match in the 20th century. And he is also, just as, as a larger point about Bellow, he is one of the few American writers who experienced almost the whole length of the century by virtue of his age and when he was born. And Bellow was born in 1915, and he died in the early 2000s, I believe, maybe 2006. So he experienced the better part of the whole of the 20th century. He was born the second year of the First World War, and he lived to see you know, September 11th. Um, so just a tremendous breadth of experience and a tremendous historical life. And he wrote novels consistently all throughout that time. And his last novel, Ravelstein, which he wrote when he was 84, is also, I think, a masterpiece. And he's one of the few writers, I think, who was able to do that, that level of work at that age in his life. I don't know of any other writer who was able to write like that in their 80s. So uh, yes, Humboldt's Gift is uh, a very special book for me. Uh, next on the list, I mean, as far as poetry is concerned, I would have to say, I mean, if these were kind of a, if this was like a desert island uh, clutch of books that I had to bring with me, if I had to bring one collection of poems, it would definitely be those of Philip Larkin. Larkin, I think, is the is the, the best English poet of the post-war years. And uh, I don't, yeah, I don't know what, what else that I can really say about him. His, uh, as all great poetry, um, uh, the voice that the, that the poet speaks in is somehow uh, aligned with your own sensibilities, somehow communicating directly to you. And that's the way I feel when I, when I read Philip Larkin. Number, Six would be uh, the collected essays of Michel de Montaigne. Uh, I hope I'm not cheating by saying that I would prefer the collected essays, uh, but Montaigne's essays would be, uh, I'd say the, uh, the greatest and the most rewarding um, cross-section of philosophical thought on any number of subjects um, over uh, uh, a length of time. You know, the project took him the better part of 10 years to compose and it's over a thousand pages. Uh, and it has incredible intellectual variety and style. And, uh, you know, there are very few literary genres where the person who is credited with inventing the genre does it better than anybody else who came after. And I think Montan is the perfect example of that, which is not to say that people have not written better essays since then, or that the essay form has not evolved and, and improved since that time. But I think basically everything you could do in the essay was done by Montaigne. Uh, number five would be Letters to a Young Contrarian by Christopher Hitchens, um, more as a kind of personal manifesto. Um, Christopher Hitchens is one of my favorite uh, thinkers, writers, 
uh, intellects has been endlessly uh, inspirational and influential for me. And uh, this book, which is modeled after Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet, uh, is essentially about what it means to live uh, an intellectual life in which none of your, none of your responsibilities are anchored to uh, what is considered socially acceptable or responsible within the discourse. Um, and uh, it's a, a testament, I think, for a yeah, fiercely independent uh, thought. And uh, Christopher Hitchens is very, very much missed for me. You know, I miss him every day. Sincerity and Authenticity by Lionel Trilling. I would also put on that list as well. Um, I could have, you know, I could have picked any number of Trillings as well. I could have picked The Opposing Self or I could have picked uh, The Liberal Imagination, but Sincerity and Authenticity is a nice example of a kind of literary criticism that I like to do and would like to do more of, which is a combination of uh, intellectual history, the history of ideas uh, and literary criticism and a, a way of exploring intellectual history through literature. And Sincerity and Authenticity is essentially uh, exploring these two ideas in the title and how they developed over time. And Trilling does a really brilliant job using mostly literary sources at exploring these ideas. And I can't recommend it enough for people who are maybe interested in reading Trilling. I would absolutely recommend that. Uh, the next one on the list would be Underworld by Don DeLillo. Uh, again, could have chosen any number of DeLillos, but I feel like Underworld is his magnum opus. Um, everything that is great about DeLillo is contained within that book. And uh, I've read it three times now. And that book never ceases to amaze me in terms of all the things that it manages to hold together throughout its narrative. Uh, it has so many moving parts and so many different characters. And uh, the voice throughout is so fluid and so easygoing and so flexible. Um, I don't know how other people feel about the book, but it's, it's not a book that will ever try your patience or, uh, or frustrate you. Uh, for me, the book is just 800 and something pages of pure, pure pleasure and pure joy. Uh, and yeah, I think it's the finest of DeLillo's work. Uh, next on the list would be, I'd say, uh, The Sound of the Fury by William Faulkner. Uh, that was a novel that also had a very big impact on me when I first read it. Um, just in terms of its ability to explore uh, different voices and its uh, use of stream of consciousness in the prose. Um, and it had a big influence a lot of the, on a lot of the stuff that I was writing at the time. Although now, of course, I think I've, I've moved more away from Faulkner considerably in my influences. But uh, yeah, that book had a big impact on me at the time I read it. And I think it's probably Faulkner's finest along with As I Lay Dying. And uh, the last one, do we have two more or one more? How many Just have one. I done? Just one more? Yeah. So. Uh, well, the last one, you know, this is a, maybe a little bit predictable, um, of course, but predictable or not, I mean, it's, it's there for a reason. It would be Hamlet. Um, I could easily pick the collected works of Shakespeare, but I feel like that would be cheating. So I feel <laughs> I have to select one play. And of all the plays to pick, Hamlet is, I think, supreme. Um, and I don't really think that I need to 
to explain why it is, I don't think I really need to make a case for it because what can what can one say about Hamlet that hasn't already been said? Um, uh, there's nothing that I can say uh, that uh, that hasn't probably been better uh, better said by somebody else. Uh, but yes, Hamlet is the uh, I think Shakespeare's finest work uh, as a dramatist, and uh, that play as well is uh, endlessly revisitable and uh, endlessly pleasurable to read. Wow, a lot of great things on that list. Very cool. One thing I wanted to ask you about was um, based on the Bellow and Hitchens and uh, Larkin. Have you read um, Martin Amos's Inside Story? I have, yes. I actually reviewed Inside Story for Quillette uh, when it came out. Um, I also really enjoyed uh, Inside Story. I think it, it got mixed reviews, but uh, uh, it, it's the kind of book that seemed like it was made for me. I mean, Mark Namus is also one of my favorite writers. I was thinking about putting one of his books on the list. I really love Time's Era, for example. Um, and so it was one of those situations where uh, it was a book written by one of my favorite people, and it was about three of my other favorite people. <laughs> so uh, it was uh, also, yeah, a really, really fun experience reading that book and getting to hear some some personal stories about people like uh, Bello and Hitch from from Amos, Amos's personal life. Mm. Did you read that book? Yeah, I love that book. I think it's fantastic. I think it's quite sad for me to read it, especially with, uh, you know, talking about Christopher Hitchens, you know, dying and Saul Bellow dying and, you know, but um, yeah, it's, it's a great book. Yeah. yeah, it is a little bit melancholy because yes, the, the three people that uh, Martin's writing about, of course, are all his, his deceased friends. And, mm. uh, you know, he says at the end of the book that this will probably be his last big novel. And, uh, you know, the conceit, of course, for anyone who's read the book is that you're being taken into the author's home. You know, the book begins by uh, Martin saying like, come in, sit down, like I'll pour you a drink, you know, like put your feet up by the fire. And near the end of the book, he's saying like, well, I suppose we should be getting on now. And, you know, let me get your coat. Thanks for coming in. You know, it was nice talking to you. And it is a little bit sad near the end of the book because you get the sense that he as well is, is saying goodbye. Yes. Well, hopefully he keeps on writing some more things because he is a great living novelist. I hope so. Yes. All right. Well, speaking of that, we should probably wrap it up ourselves. But before we do, do you want to tell us where we can go out and buy Venus and Document and where we can find you online and catch your writing? Sure, absolutely. Well, uh, the publisher of Venus and Document is Crow's Nest Books, and the book is available um, on the publisher's website. Um, they do ship internationally, so I would recommend that everybody go there to buy the book. Uh, the book is also available on Amazon, of course, though I would discourage people from buying it there for obvious reasons that maybe need not be gone into. Um, and uh, yes, those are the two places where you, you can most likely find it. Um, and if you live in a place like uh, New York City, you might also be able to pick up copies at, uh, at the Strand as well or in your local bookstores. All right. And where can we find you online and where can we read your work? Uh, the best place to find me online would be probably just my Twitter profile, which is uh, at Jared M. Pollan. Um, most of my work is, is available there, as well as the link to my uh, personal website, which has my selected bibliography on it. Um, and uh, as I said, I am in, in Prague at the moment, and I live on Central 
uh, European time. So for anyone who uh, wants to do events, uh, be mindful of that, of course. <laughs> Uh, but I'm readily available for, for all speaking engagements in other events. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, I highly recommend Venus and Document. I think it's a great novel and I really look forward to reading whatever you've got coming out next. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks once again to Jared Marcel Pollan. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod, and you can email us at BeyondZeroPod at gmail.com. We'll be back with you next episode next week.